Good morning, Crossroads family. How is everyone this morning? I'm Pastor Matt. I'm here to uh, open up God's Word for us this morning. And we are uh, looking at the book of Daniel uh, during this period of time that we're uh, uh, going through God's Word. And in the book of Daniel, we've labeled the series, uh, we've entitled the series, Developing an Unshakable Hope in Uncertain Times. And certainly, um, that's something that each and every one of us could use, right? The type of hope, the type of uh, uh, assurance that, that God is on his throne and nothing can shake that in our lives. Amen? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in life. Um, just this week, uh, there's been several people that have gone down with medical issues in our church. Um, and just last Sunday, they were here with us. So in their lives, in their experience, one Sunday they're, they're fine, and the next Sunday they're in the hospital, right? That's uncertainty. That's, we don't know. We can't even, tomorrow is not guaranteed when it comes to our health. Or maybe relationships, right? Every week, my wife and I try and go on a date. And the reason we try and do that is because we recognize that we're vulnerable, just like all of us are vulnerable, to our relationship deteriorating. Right? Our relationship not maintaining the strength that God intends for it to have as a married couple. And so, in our lives, relationships are vulnerable at times, right? We can't control the other person. Amen? Amen? We can only look at ourselves and we can go to God for that hope that, that He can help us in all the uncertain times of life. This morning, as we open up Daniel chapter 3 together... And I encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 3 if you have your Bible or you have one of those fancy iPhones with the app. Just make sure it's on silent this morning. Nobody in particular. Just make sure you've silenced your phone. Um, but as you, as you go through your um, uh, opening up the Word, I just want to say that this morning our title is A Faith That Endures the Fire. Now that probably cues you into what we're going to look at this morning. Daniel chapter 3 is the famous story of what? The fiery furnace. How many of you guys grew up as a child and heard the story of the, the men who were thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And you know, it, it's such a popular kid's story that I, I fear at times that we lose sight of the fact that this event is a true historical event. It really happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's something that took place in the lives of these three men. When we get to see them one day in heaven, we can ask them, what was it like for you guys to literally be thrown into a blazing furnace and come out unharmed? This was not a fairy tale. We don't look and we don't open up God's word and say, well, it's a myth or it's a tale. No, this is, this is history. This is real events that God used. He stepped into our world at times, and he impacted the lives of people. He continues to do that because he's a living God. Amen? Amen. And so we, we want to look at that. So I asked God, I was praying this week, God, please, in my audience here at Carmichael, please get through that you're a real God. And there was a real furnace. And what did he do? He turned up the heat to 115 here in Sacramento to remind us all that there, he's a real God of a real furnace. 
and he, he can deliver us from the heat. Amen? And you know what, what's exciting is this weekend, guess what happened? We're beginning to be delivered from the furnace. Amen? So that's, yeah. Praise God for that, right? So Daniel chapter 3, let's, let's open together. And uh, I want to I say this. So we've, if you guys haven't been here, I encourage you to go back and listen to chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we, the, over the last three weeks, we looked at those sections. Um, but there's a, there's a time separation between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And, and many scholars believe that it's up to 20 years took place from the time that Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar until this moment where there's a fiery furnace that we're going to come and look at this morning. Um, many say that this event took place around 587 B.C., um, the events of chapter 2 were closer to 603 B.C. So at least 16, 17 years had transpired between what we read about in chapter 2 and what we read about here in chapter 3. And that's important because sometimes we just flip the page and we're like, how did the king go from that to that? Right? What? But think about what were you doing 15 to 20 years ago? Has your life changed? Do you remember what God taught you 15 to 20 years ago? Or does it sometimes the events of our lives um, overrule what we've discovered about God and change our perspective? And so I want to make sure that you guys understand that this took place right as King Nebuchadnezzar had returned from basically sacking Jerusalem. You see, he had left a puppet king, so to speak, a king that was supposed to pay his allegiance to him, but was a Jewish ruler, over the throne in Jerusalem. Well, that king had rebelled several times. So finally, he's like, that's it. So he actually went, and he grabbed that king, and he killed his sons in front of the king while he was still alive, so that the last thing that he saw was his own sons dying. And then he plunged out his eyes and took them in chains to Babylon. And that was the existence of King Zedekiah, one of the last men to rule in Jerusalem. And at that point, they sieged the city. And his army surrounded the city, and it was just a matter of time before all of Jerusalem would fall. And so King Nebuchadnezzar returns back to his palace in Babylon during this time where he's like, I'm done with them Jews. I'm so tired of the mess that they create for me in my kingdom. And I'm the king. I'm powerful. I can destroy anything. And this sets the stage for what we read in chapter 3. Let's, let's begin together. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Literally, it says 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. A cubit is just from here to there. And the typical measurement was like the tip of your fingers down to your elbow, and, and a typical man's arm would be measured about 18 inches. 18 inches long. And so this man sets up a statue that you can imagine, 90 feet high. That's some, like, 9 or 10-story building. That's tall. I think in Sacramento, the tallest building in downtown Sacramento is only 16 stories. Have you ever been up, up to the top? I, I, I've been up there, and it's uh, quite a view from up there. So it's, it's a big, giant statue, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, you've got to recall back to chapter 2, because he had a vision, he had a dream, and then Daniel interpreted the dream for him. Do you remember that? 
Now listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. And this, this is in the back of the king's mind. Verse uh, 36 of chapter 2 says this. This was the dream. Daniel had just told the king the dream that he had dreamed without ever knowing what the dream was. God had revealed it. Now we, Daniel speaking, me and God, I am God's servant, and together we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. And, you know, he's like, yeah, that's right. I mean, your God must be right. You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you, King Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the air, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. You remember, he, he had this vision of this statue. And the statue was this, this image of a person, and at the top of the person was a head, and it was a head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar's like, Shh, even Daniel's God said, I'm the king, and I'm the, I'm the golden head, and so I'm amazing. And look, he can't, his people can't even withstand me. I've just destroyed their city. I've gouged out the eyes of their king. I'm the king of kings. And it's about time that we set up a statue for people to recognize that and to worship me. And so he, he erects this golden statue 90 feet high. Now, there's a commentary I was reading, um, a man named Ironside. He's long been with the Lord, but um, in the early 1900s, he was a famous theologian, and he writes these words. We see how little Nebuchadnezzar had learned from the re revelation God had made to him. For we see that he was not humbled by the revelation made. Instead, it led him to exalt himself as one especially favored of heaven. It magnified his thoughts of the human mind and his own greatness. You remember Daniel's vision goes on to say, hey, eventually the head of gold turns into a chest of silver and then the legs of bronze and, and down to the feet of iron and clay. And, and there's going to be a, a, a little a stone that's carved out of the mountain that's thrown at the statue and the whole thing crumbles into nothingness. Well, he forgot that part of the vision, didn't he? The only thing he focused on, I'm the head of gold. That's right. I'm all powerful. So it had gone to his head. Instead of being humbled by the God of heaven, he instead is filled with pride. And so he erects the statue. Verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps. Anybody know what a satrap is? Good. Well, I researched it, so I'm going to tell you. The, the kingdom of Babylon was divided into providential districts. Many different districts, kind of like counties, but think Hunger Games, right? How many districts were there in Hunger Games? Twelve, right? Well, there was many more than twelve um, districts in Babylon, and each district was called a satrap. That was the name that they used instead of district or county, they used satrap. And so there were representatives probably from each one of these providential districts that were sent word to come. They're loyal defenders of the kingdom, and they've been scattered throughout the land. The king would intentionally put some people in each district. Why? They would advertise, like, great is King Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't he doing a great job running your district? And so he calls them to report back. Prefects, these are chief officers in the different districts. Governors, 
These are rulers over each district. Advisors, ministers of information, an advisor or a counselor whose job it was to keep the king informed on the affairs without, throughout the kingdom. They were basically to be the eyes and ears of the king. Treasurers. We all know what a treasurer is, right? Someone to keep track of the money. Judges. These were lawyers of that day or experts in the law of Babylon. Magistrates. These are like the celebrities. These are the ones who had wealth or influence within the, the region. Um, wisdom, maybe uh, the wise men are also called magistrates. Uh, the who's who list of that day. How many of you guys have ever made a who's who list? I did one time. I made a who's who list of like Multnomah University. That's where I attended up in Portland, Oregon. And I guess I had a good enough GPA to be known as the who's who of the dean list at Multnomah at one time. I felt special. Well, these are the who's who of Babylon called back the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces. These are the lower level guys. These are guys that are like ruling on the, the different, like maybe cities, the mayors are called, right? But basically it's a, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying, hey, everybody that's anybody is, you need to come and you need to report. To attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is reminiscent of a story that's already taken place in the Bible. The story of the Tower of Babel. You remember there was this giant building erected to sort of like be an indication of like, we're so awesome and powerful that we're like, we can get to, the, to God. And you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? God said, I don't think so. Your pride has gotten to you, and so I'm going to confuse your language, and I'm going to scatter you throughout the earth. That's not my intent for why I've put you on the earth. Is to try and be your own God. And yet, here we go with King Nebuchadnezzar setting up a statue where he's saying, I am something important, more important than anything else on this earth. And people need to come to the dedication of my statue. A herald loudly proclaimed, verse 4, People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. This is what you call forced worship, right? It'd be like if Nate came up here and goes, hey, you guys stand and start singing now, or else I'm taking you out back behind the woodshed. Right? This is forced worship of this statue, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't care. He's like, I'm the most important thing, and if people don't recognize that, they shouldn't be in my kingdom. Right? They'd be better off dead. So there's a threat put out. What is this all about? This is all about declaring the loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, and the values of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. But for the Jews, for God's people, this is a test of their faith. This is a test of their faith. Because going back to Deuteronomy, 
going back to the law, what was one of the commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, chapter 20? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Worship only the Lord your God. And so the Jews had, they're conflicted at this moment. They know they aren't to worship some other statue or false idol or, or being. They are to worship the one true God and serve him only. But it's been set up as a test of their faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this, You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We today continue to be tested in our faith, do we not? This wasn't just something that took place in the ancient days of Babylon. This takes place in modern Babylon, United States of America in 2022. Satan continues to erect idols and things that call for our devotion in this world. And God continues to say, don't go after those things. Don't bow down to those things. Don't worship and give your life to those things. Serve me and worship me alone. And we, being God's people, have a test that's put before us. Are we going to bow down to the statue, so to speak? Or are we going to remain loyal to the God of heaven? Verse 7. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and every kind of music, it's basically the king's orchestra, right? You can imagine the king and his mighty orchestra, and he's got all these musicians in place, and he's like, what a, an amazing day this is going to be. This is so beautiful. Look at that beautiful statue of myself and this awesome music that's playing. And look at all these, the who's who list of Babylon is here. And they're here to pay me homage. This is awesome. What a day this is going to be. His heart filled with pride. When all of that music played, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's another commentary I read. Warren Wearsby, he just went to be with the Lord a few years ago, actually in 2019. But he wrote these words, the worshipers of Daniel, chapter 3. Help us better understand the plight of people in today's world who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. They blindly follow the crowd and build their lives on the false and the futile. Concerned only with survival, they'll do almost anything to escape danger and death, even to the point of selling themselves into slavery to men and the empty myths that they promote. Have we not seen that recently in our culture? Do we not continue to see people just going along with the crowd because, oh, we're like sheep. We're afraid constantly. And when there's, when there's a threat put forward by an authority figure, what happens? People bow down. But not these men. Some Chaldeans, verse 8, the Chaldeans were the Babylonian wise men. They were the astrologers. They were these guys that were proved to be phonies in chapter 2. You remember he called the wise men? He's like, tell me my dream and tell me what it means or else I'm going to kill you all. 
And these guys are like, that's impossible. We can't do that. And then Daniel comes, and what does he do? He consults the real God of heaven. He reveals the dream, the mystery of the king, and what it means. And these guys were proven to be complete phonies and frauds. They had no power. They had no wisdom. Supernatural. And yet Daniel said, king, don't kill anyone. He saves these men in chapter 2. And now these same guys, you're about to see some years later, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They seized this opportunity to remove these men and use the king's decree as a fulcrum. The fact that Daniel and these three Hebrew exiles had positions of power, it carried a strong message in Babylon. It meant this. It meant that a Jew could one day rise to power over the entire world. Wow. Is that significant, that a Jew someday might rise to power over the entire world? That's what it signified, and Satan wanted nothing to do with that. And so he uses these men to accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 9, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. That's just the way you address the king. Oh, great is the king. May you live forever. You as king have issued a decree. You remember that king? We're here for your decree. That everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum. Hopefully some of you guys can play the zither. I'm still waiting for a zither to be up on stage. I don't even know really what that is. But somebody said it's a triangle. I researched it. It's like a triangle thing with strings on it. Anybody play the zither here? No. I guess that one faded out in history. Um, And every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews. Hey, king, got something to tell you. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Here are their names, their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. The first thing we need to understand if we're going to develop a faith that endures the fire is this. Faith that endures the fire rejects conceding to the values of this world no matter what the cost. A faith that endures the fire will reject conceding to the values of this world no matter what it costs. And is there a great cost for these men? Yeah, they were threatened with the fiery furnace. That doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't sound like something you want to be a part of, right? And yet these men say, no, we're not bowing down, king. And they did it, did they do it in an overt way where they went right in front of the king and say, "Mm, we're not doing it? Did they do it that way? Or did they do it in a subtle way? Probably subtle, right? They wouldn't even been noticed had it not been for these guys who said, look at those guys over there. We're going to go report that to the king. Everybody loves a snitch, right? Everybody loves those snitches. Verse 13, then in a furious rage. Last time we heard about Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, he was in a furious rage. This guy's got anger issues. Needs some counseling. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Is it true? 
Is it deliberate? Is it on purpose? Say it ain't so that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up. In other words, he's saying, why would you defy this, this order? I've been good to you guys. Why would you? There must be some sort of misunderstanding on your part. Or maybe the report was incorrect. So let's, let's give it another try, boys, shall we? This is what the king's doing. He's, 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 he's trying to get them to see that this is a reasonable request, is it not? I mean, this is my day. Don't, don't ruin my day. I've been so good to you. Now, boys, verse 15, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, Boys, I'm serious about this one. If you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God? Who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Well, he just made a huge mistake right there. Because he just challenged the God of heaven. You know, what's interesting is the word power there is the word in Aramaic for hand. The hand of God. The hand of God. And, you know, it's interesting because God had already delivered the entire nation of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Do you remember that in Exodus? And now he's saying, who can deliver, what God can deliver you out of my hand is what he's basically challenging. Daniel knew this well, as, as did the Judean men that were sitting in front of the king. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. In other words, they're saying, you, we're not obligated to defend ourselves before you because you aren't the authority that we're ultimately accountable to. Think about that. These three men knew who they were accountable to, and that's all they were concerned with. We are accountable to the God of heaven. We don't need to answer any other authority. I thought that's an interesting statement. They weren't obligated to answer the king, but they're going to do the courtesy, right? They're still going to interact with this king for his sake, not for theirs. Verse 17, if the God we serve exists, one of the worst English translations of this verse that's ever been made, by the way. We're going to look at that. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Now listen, every once in a while in the Bible, in the English translation, the translators do a bad job. Here is one of the times where it happened in the Holman translation. So I'm going to go to three other versions real quick for this verse to show you what I mean. NIV, verse 17, says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... New Living Translation. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace. Uh, the New American Standard, even the King James Version says this. If it be so. If what be so? If what you say is going to happen to us be so. What did the king just say is going to happen to them? They're going to be thrown into the, the furnace. So the if statement in this verse has nothing to do with whether or not God exists. The men knew quite well 
that God existed. They weren't going to say, if God exists, right? So sometimes when you're reading the Bible in English, you got to go to many different versions to really understand, because even translators make mistakes, okay? There you go. So right here, we're going to, if the God we serve exists, they knew quite well that their God existed. The if statement in this passage is all about if you decide to go ahead and throw us into the fiery furnace, what do they say about it? Now we can go back to the Holman because from then on, it's fine. They just screwed up on one little statement here. He can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Number two thing, faith that endures the fire remains confident in God's salvation. It doesn't waver. It doesn't say, well, God, he can handle certain things, but he can't handle this situation in my life. No, the faith that endures the fire says God can handle it all. It doesn't matter what the world throws at me. It doesn't matter what the enemy is trying to throw at me. My God can save and rescue, and I am confident in that reality. I can't, I can't help but think that these men had recently read Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2 says this. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. That's the God that they served. That's the God that they read about in the book of Isaiah and the scroll of Isaiah that they carried with them into Babylon. This was the God that they had their faith and trust in. Verse 18, but even if he does not rescue us, they knew that God is sovereign. They knew that it's God's choice, not theirs. You know, many times when we pray, we pray what? If it's your will, God, please heal this person. If it's your will, God, please rescue and save me from this situation. Please heal this relationship. Please. But you know what? It's God's choice. He's sovereign. He sees the big picture that we can't see. And even sometimes he allows things to happen that we wouldn't want. Right? None of these men want to go to the fiery furnace. None of these men are hoping to die that day. Right? But they say it's God's choice. He is sovereign. We trust in him. We want you to know, King that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Number three thing, faith that endures the fire requires confessing your allegiance to God despite tremendous pressure to conform. Do you confess your allegiance to God? Even when there's tremendous pressure coming at you to conform to the values of this world. You know, confession is not always just with the mouth. It's with what you do. It's with how you respond. It's with the way that you take action in the moment of decision. Their action was this. King, we're not bowing down. No matter what you try to do to us, we're not bowing down. Because we serve the one true God. And he says, don't bow down to any other. That is the true faith that will endure the fire. Luke 21, verse 12, in case you didn't think that today we will face any kind of trials, 
or any kind of persecution or any kind of tribulation. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 12, but before all these things, before what all things? He's talking about the end of time. He's talking about him coming back again for his church, the bride. He's talking about the end of the world as we know it this age. Before all these things, Jesus said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, and they will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. But it will lead to an opportunity for you to witness. That's what Jesus says. We'll be given opportunities just like these three men were given opportunities. And you know what? It might not be a pleasant moment where you're given that opportunity because you're going up against the authority of this world. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Amen? Amen. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. Here's Mr. Anger issues. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I love this. In the Aramaic, this is a play on words. And this is a play on words by the writer Daniel, who, remember, is writing this after the effect. He already knows the end of the story, Right? So he writes this in the text, and you wouldn't pick it up unless you could study Aramaic, so I'm going to give it to you because I thought it was amazing. What he says here is it, it, it begins with a wordplay, and the wordplay is literally this. The king's face was distorted just like his statue was distorted. Basically, Daniel's mocking this guy's statue. He said, your statue looks ugly, king. It's this giant head that goes all the way down for 90 feet. That's a distorted image. It's ridiculous, and it's worthless, right? And your face, when you got mad, looked just like your statue. And, Daniel adds this into the mind of the reader, just like your statue is worthless and unable to do anything, so you, king, with all your threats, aren't going to be able to accomplish your goals against these three men who stand by the God of heaven. This is exciting to me, Daniel writes this little clue in the text, but you can only pick it up because of the wordplay that's happening in Aramaic. But it's really cool that Daniel is sort of like mocking the king and all these false authorities in, in the face of the God of heaven. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. I always thought, like, that's kind of dumb, right? You heat it up so they'll die quicker? That's not like prolonging their suffering. You're actually making it easier on these guys. Sometimes, you know, when you get mad, you make some bad decisions. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. Number four, faith that endures the fire refuses to compromise even when the heat is turned up. You know, I thought about this for a second. I thought, you know, this is when it's real. This is when it gets real. The punishment is coming. These men are being tied up. The, the furnace is being heated. They're being led towards this furnace. There's an out, and the out is simply this. We're sorry, king. We'll bow down to you now. Have you ever been in a situation where you're facing the consequences of your decision to stay true to God? The faith that endures a fire refuses to compromise even when the heat is turned up. We read nothing about these men begging for their lives. We read nothing about these men second-guessing their decision to stay true to God. 
we read about these men being confident as they approach the furnace that we know God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. So these men in their trousers, <laughs> this is kind of cool, their robes, their head coverings, all their regular clothes. It wasn't like they got put on prison garb first, right? Or stripped of their clothing. They have all their clothes on. So clothes are what? Flammable, right? There's kind of the point that he's making is, hey, there's a lot of things that can catch fire here. And we're tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Now, I've, I've researched real quick, and I'm running low on time. But here's a couple pictures of furnaces back in 700 B.C. These were iron-smelting furnaces, right? I've always thought, like, what were these things, right? But they were used basically to purify iron by heating it up and then allowing the, uh, I guess it's stag. I don't know much about smelting iron, but, but certainly there was a procedure used in those times to create iron, and this was the threat. It wasn't like he had a, a fiery furnace just for killing people. He was like, hey, we use this for iron, so you guys are, you guys, I'll just throw you in that. And so there's kind of like this thing, and maybe there was sort of an opening that they could see through, because we're going to see in a minute that the Nebuchadnezzar is able to see them, but likely they were thrown from the top of wherever this opening was. Maybe the other picture real quick. See, there's probably a platform that was built up to that top, and they just tossed them in there. Because it says they went down, or they, you know, they, they were thrown in. Verse 22, Since the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. You know, this picture of this uh, judgment here emphasizes the immediacy, immediacy of the punishment, the severity of the punishment, and the helpless and hopeless condition of those who were, who were enduring the punishment of the king. It foreshadows our condition before a God, a king of the universe, who we have offended, who we have said, no, we're not going to follow your ways or your rules. Well, these men were immediately judged, right? They were severely judged, and they were helpless to do anything about it themselves. Warren Wearsby says this, as we move towards the end of the age, the furnace of opposition will be heated seven times hotter, and the pressure to conform will become stronger and stronger. It will take a great deal of grace, prayer, courage, and faith for God's people to stand tall for Christ, while others are bowing the knee to the gods of this world. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, and they're not tied. They're walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Number five, faith that endures fire rescues from calamity. It rescues us from calamity. God's rescue is personal. Do you see it here? He shows up and protects them in the fire. It frees us from our chains. They're no longer tied. They're no longer bound. And it provides complete deliverance from the fire of judgment. Amen?
Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. I don't have time to read through it, but the first 10 verses talk about this. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it says. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins when you used to do the things that all of this world does. Sin against the authority of the king of heaven. All of us were in that same boat. We've all offended the king, and we were all under a curse of judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, he sent his son. And he delivered us from that sentence and that curse. He came to us right in the midst of our problems. And he walked on this earth. He endured our shame on a cross. And he rose again. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says this. For by grace are you saved. And how are you saved by grace? Through faith. A faith that endures the fire. A faith that these men demonstrated. That's the faith that saves us. We are saved because of God's grace. We didn't earn it. It's unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve, but God loves us. And God sent rescue into this world. But do you have faith to receive God's free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the question that this chapter challenges us in. Do we have faith that will endure the fire? Nebuchadnezzar witnessed something that no other king in the Bible, foreign king, ever saw. And that is that he saw the angel of the Lord. There's a lot of debate. Was this just an angel or was this Jesus in pre-incarnate form? It doesn't even really matter, but I believe it was Jesus who had showed up as the angel of the Lord to rescue and to save. And he got the opportunity to witness this firsthand. Nebuchadnezzar, think about the revelation that Nebuchadnezzar received during his reign about the one true God. This is how he responds. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just walked right out of the fire. When the satraps, remember those dudes, the hoo-hoos of Babylon, the prefix, the governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. There was not even a smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wait a second. This is his day where his golden statue is set up. And you have the king with his golden statue praising the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow. What a day that must have been. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. What a testimony. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn from limb to limb and his house made a garbage dump pretty good, huh? And you, can you imagine those guys that brought Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to the king? They're like, we, it wasn't us. We, we didn't say anything bad about them. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Amen? 
Number six, and I'm going to invite the worship team as we respond this morning to come up. We're going to be singing a few songs and responding to God. But number six, the faith that endures the fire results in crediting praise and glory to God. Do you notice how it impacts and changes the culture around them? Do you guys see it here? Did the faith of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, was it, didn't make any impact on their culture? Or did it change everything? It changed everything because they stayed true to their God and God was able to use them and their faith and their testimony of who he is in a powerful way in that day, in that culture. My question to you is, does he want to use us today? Does he want to use us as we demonstrate faith in the one true God of heaven in every situation of life to change and to be a testimony to those around us in our world? Our world doesn't need more laws. Our world doesn't need more politicians. What our world needs is men, women, and youth, and children who stand up and take a stand and say, I worship the God of heaven alone, and I trust in him. We want to change the culture. We want to change the culture. Let's start living like men and women who trust Jesus. Verse 30, then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province. Of Babylon. The final thing we see here is faith that endures the fire rewards and cares for the faithful. Does it not? Were they rewarded? Were they cared for? Even if they would have died in the fire, would they have been rewarded in heaven? Would they have been cared for forever in heaven? Yes, faith that endures the fire, you don't have to fear because God is on your side. You know, a few hundred years after this event, God showed up again. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived. He walked among us, like I said earlier. And ultimately, he endured a cross. That was the ultimate rescue mission. He came to seek and save. He came to rescue those who were lost in their sins and in their shame and in their darkness. He came for you and me. And you know, in an upper room, the night before he was betrayed and ultimately led to the cross... He gathered his closest disciples and he said, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the one who was in the fire with you. I want you to remember me, and this is how I want you to remember me. I want you to take a bread, and I want you to break it, and I want you to eat it, because that is representative of the body that I break, that will be broken for your sin. Just in a day, in a day's time, he was going to be broken on a cross for our sin. And then he says, take the little cup of juice or wine and and remember it and drink of it because it represents my blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You know, we have an opportunity right now as we respond in worship, as we sing some songs that remind us of these great truths that we looked at this morning, to respond to this amazing God who walks with us through, through our fire. There is another in the fire. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to respond to your word. God, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but help us to be doers. Help us to be men and women who have faith in you, who represent you in this world by saying, there is no other God I'm going to follow other than the God of heaven. My faith and trust is in him alone. God, as we remember your sacrifice through communion, 
Help us to rededicate our hearts. If there's any sin between you and us, help us to ask for forgiveness for that sin. You say you're faithful and just. You forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. God, thank you that you're a God of second chances, a God of many chances. Help us to return to you with full hearts of faith and assurance of who we serve. There is no other. There's only the God who walks with us through the fire. We celebrate you. We raise our voices to you. 